we would invite you for that. That's a, uh, a, a joyous time. Last week was great. And, uh, and so we trust that you will join us for that again tonight. I am looking forward to it for sure. We are going to be reading in various passages today, but it kind of stems from chapter 9, verses 14, 15, and 16, which is what I want to read for us. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Let's pray. Father, we worship you together this morning. And the songs we have sung have reminded us of truths about you, your greatness and your holiness, and your goodness and your mercy toward us. Father, we pray that even as we open your word to various passages this morning, even as we work to understand what you have taught us in Scripture, we pray that you would be at work. Pray that you, by your Spirit, would use your word proclaimed even this morning to change our hearts. Father, I pray that even as we discuss things that can be difficult to understand or uh, perhaps difficult to accept or to believe, I pray that your Spirit would be at work. I pray that you would be honored in the way we handle difficulty even this kind of difficulty. So we submit ourselves to you. And we submit ourselves to your word. And we ask that you would work in us, even in this time, lifting yourself up, building us up. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I hope you have a bulletin. Uh, the bulletin will have an outline there, and that gives us direction on uh, where we're going, and you can take notes there and, and to remind yourself later on of where we've been, etc. And also, I would write, uh, call to your attention that there should be a yellow sheet in there that is the Connect Group Study Guide. And that's something that uh, for our Connect Groups that meet throughout the week, we use that as the guide for our discussion. And we don't, we don't go through it slavishly, having to uh, answer every question always or, or whatever, but it is intended to cause reflection upon the things that we've talked about in the sermon. And then when the connect groups meet, it's an opportunity for us to go through and discuss um, either some things that we covered in the sermon or perhaps some things we brushed up against but didn't get to in the sermon. And we can chase more rabbits in a connect group than we can on a uh, Sunday morning. And so I commend that to you. So we're talking about Romans chapter 9. We've been in Romans 9 for some time, and it has raised difficult questions, and we have uh, labored, I have labored to explain to you what I believe this text is teaching. I've tried to make it as clear as I can, and it's a difficult topic, and there's a lot connected to it when you talk about election, when you talk about God's sovereignty even in salvation, God's sovereignty even over the will of man, God's working in those ways, and how do we 
put those uh, concepts together, how are we to understand them? Well, I've presented my view, and of course, if you uh, were to present your view, your view might be different. I have presented my view not as my opinion. I have tried to, to uh, demonstrate, to, to make clear that it arises from the text. That's been one of my main purposes, is to, to point to and to show how it arises from the text. It's not something that I bring to the text and place upon the top of it. That would be eisegesis for me to do that, to bring my idea and, and make the context or make the passage say what I want to say. That would be eisegesis, reading into it. That's not my goal. My goal here is to exegete, to lead forth, to lead out the meaning that is inherent in the text. And so I've sought to do that to a greater or lesser success. And uh, as I've done that, no doubt... Uh, some of you have had thoughts, well, what about this? And what about that? And what about these other things? And of course, a sermon is not a dialogue, so you don't get to raise those during, the, during that time. But I've heard a lot of them, and uh, maybe I've not heard particularly from you or, or your particular um, thing that you would like to comment on, but, but I have heard a lot of verses brought up as if they were disruptive to what I presented, as if they presented a different teaching from what uh, the way I've been presenting Romans chapter 9. And so my goal today is to work through three of them. We could do more. It would take more time, of course. My goal is to work through the most common three that, uh, that seem to appear. But in preparation for us, you'll see there in, the, in, the, um, in your outline, you've got a one, two, three, even before the, before the first point there. And that's because I want to talk about some, some ground rules that we can lay when we're trying to work through and understand Scripture, particularly when we're talking about these difficult topics where one person might say, well, what about this verse? And someone says, yeah, but what about this other verse that seems to say something different? So I want to lay some ground rules to give us direction as we proceed. And ground rule number one is that God's Word is clear. It's not foggy. It is clear. It communicates truth. Now, that doesn't mean that it communicates truth without you having to do a little work. But what it does mean is there's not fog. There's not confusion in the Word of God. It is coherent. You can, you can apprehend it. You can understand what is there. And so, because of that, because the Bible teaches uh, truth, it teaches coherently, what that means is we don't get to a situation where we have one verse saying one thing and another verse saying something contradictory. We don't pit verses against one another. That's not the way God's Word works. It is coherent. Now, we may have to work, as I said, to understand how these verses that appear to be contradictory or that appear to be so different from one another, how we can understand them together. And that's what we seek to do even today. But God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. And so when He communicates, and He has communicated in His Word, He does so in a way that is not confusing. Secondly, we need to give preference to didactic passages, to teaching passages. The Bible, when it talks about a particular subject, like election or like salvation or name any other topic, when it talks about it, it does so in various ways. Some passages are designed and written to explain to you more in depth about this subject, whatever the subject is. Other passages might brush up against that subject while they're talking about something else. But they'll mention it. They'll brush up against it. They'll make a comment about it. 
but they're really focused on something different. And so we need to give preference in our understanding to the didactic passages. Those are the ones laying the groundwork that help us understand these other passages that took a, a glancing uh, blow at our topic where they drove by and they made a comment about this subject. We need to interpret the other non-didactic passages where Jesus or Paul or, or a psalmist or something comments in passing about a subject. We need to interpret that comment in light of the passages clearly intended to teach upon that subject. A related one to that is that we need to give preference to clear passages. Some passages are not as clear as other passages. The entire message of the Bible is clear, though we may have to work at it. It's not simple, but it's clear and it is coherent. But some passages, when you read them by themselves, you could think, well, you, you know, the wording is not super clear. It could be this. Or if we just look at this passage, it could mean this. There's some, they're ambiguous. They're not intended to clarify on that topic. Well, those passages would be less clear, and we need to interpret the less clear passages in light of the ones that are very clear. This is what it teaches. You have to do something goofy to believe that this passage doesn't, doesn't teach what, what it does on its face. So that's a clear passage, and we need to interpret the ambiguous or the less clear passage in light of the clearer passages. Okay? Does that make sense? That's the third one there. And then fourthly, the fourth ground rule, and this is, this is one that is uh, very important for us, and it's hard to discipline yourself in regard to this. I will do my best this morning, and I, I always do my best, uh, I hope, to obey this one. And that's that each passage must be allowed to speak for itself. In other words, no leaping off into other passages to rescue my view. So if we're talking about anything and a passage comes up, we're talking about this passage, I need to work to understand that passage itself. I, I need to try to understand it thoroughly in its context before I go to another verse. Scripture does interpret Scripture. It absolutely does. But we need to interpret Scripture knowing the context in which a particular verse occurs. And then after I've worked through that and say, okay, I, I, I think I get it. All right, now I've got a grip on this whole passage. Now I'm going to go over here and I'm going to talk about another passage. You see, that's different than what happens when you're having perhaps a contentious discussion or a difficult discussion and you're just throwing verses at each other. Yeah, what about this verse and that verse and this verse and that verse and this verse? You see, you're not really getting anywhere. Or if I'm trying to defend my position, if the way I defend my position is just to pull out four or five verses that sound like the thing I want to say, well, it may sound like a convincing argument. But if I have not given due attention to each passage in its own context to understand what it's actually saying, I'm just proof texting. I'm just pulling out verses that sound like what I want to say. And so I will endeavor not to do that. And, uh, and that's something that we need to be cautious of in our own Bible study, in our own discussions. So with those four rules under our belt, that God's Word is clear. We need to give preference to didactic passages. We need to give preference to clear passages and allow each passage to speak for itself from its own context. Having that as the groundwork, those are the rules for our discussion. I want to go ahead and enter into today's topic. So I have my Bible open to Romans chapter 9. And in verse 18, 
we read, so then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now that sounds like God makes a decision of who will receive his mercy and who will receive hardening. That's God's decision. And that raises an objection right away in people's minds. Yeah, I've read in 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3 and verse 9. 2 Peter, not 1 Peter, Brennan. 2 Peter 3, 9. We read this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. But he is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So on one hand, we hear strong statements that God mercies and hardens whomever he wills, his choice. And on the other hand, we read here that Peter says that uh, he does not wish any to perish, but that all should reach repentance. So how are we to understand those two together? Is that... Does that mean that what I've been presenting from Romans chapter 9, that it's actually God's determinative will of who will receive mercy and who will not, it sure sounds like I must be wrong if I read from 2 Peter 3.9. So you get the objection. He says he wishes that, he doesn't wish that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So if God wants everybody to be saved... If God doesn't want anybody to perish but wants everybody to be saved, it seems like we have a problem. How can the things that I've been saying from Romans chapter 9 be true if 2 Peter 3.9 is true? And 2 Peter 3.9 is true. Well, the way we answer these kind of problems, keeping in mind the rules that we've already given, is that we need to give due attention to the context. In, uh, in grad school, we learned a phrase that context is king. And that is super helpful in that when you're interpreting a verse, when you're interpreting a passage, you need to be aware of what's around it in the context of the book in which it's written. We need to know the context. And we're going to do that here in 2 Peter chapter 3, uh, looking at verse 9. As we look at 2 Peter, uh, looking back mainly at chapter 2 and, uh, and chapter 3 entirely, you have this uh, discussion being developed where there are Three groups of people that Peter has in mind when he's making, uh, making his argument here. And he, the first group is the you group. He calls, he calls this group you. The, these are the ones to whom the book is addressed. In, in 1 Peter, he's simply referred to the elect. 1 Peter chapter 1, he was talking about the elect. In 2 Peter uh, chapter 1 and verse 1, he, talks, uh, he says he's writing to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. He's writing to Christians, right? It's the same kind of group that he's writing to. And so, in other words, you refers to believers, or perhaps it refers to those who will be believers. He's talking about a particular group of people, and he identifies them throughout uh, all of Second Peter. So that's the first group. That's the you group. They're the recipients. The second group is we, which is not tricky. The second group is where Peter includes himself. Perhaps he includes himself and the other apostles. 
or perhaps he includes himself with those believers, but he speaks, uh, he uses the word we and talks about us. He's referring to himself and he's referring to the believers to whom he is writing. We see an example of that in 3.13. So we've got the first group, which is you. Those are the, the believers, those who have obtained that faith. Secondly, the second group is we, and the third group is they. They. And in this group, particularly in chapter 2 and chapter 3, Peter refers to the scoffers, to the false teachers, to the false prophets. They're discussed throughout. If you just even glance at the headings in chapter 2, it's about uh, false prophets and teachers, and you can see how that is developed through there and even into uh, chapter 3. And so this group, these are not believers. These are hostile to the church. They're actually false teachers. They're false prophets. They're those who stand against the church, who fight against the Lord. So, keeping those categories in mind, the you, the we, and the they, now let's think about what's going on in the context. Chapter 2 talks about these false teachers and, these, uh, and false prophets who will come. And it's not just that they say things that are untrue. They're actually threatening and endangering the church. They're causing problems within the church. And, uh, and Peter will say about them in chapter 2 and verse 3, their destruction is not asleep. That's an interesting turn of phrase there. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle and their destruction is not asleep. So these who have been attacking the church, they've been standing against the gospel, they've been preaching and teaching things, leading people away from Christ, they're destructive, and their destruction is not asleep. It will happen. Their judgment will come. And so they will be destroyed, chapter 2 and verse 12, they will be destroyed in their destruction. And so we have this chapter written about these false teachers and the dangers and some of the things they teach and and what comes of it and stuff like that they are referred to as they throughout well so the the question naturally comes to mind if peter's writing to a church and he's talking about these these people who are dangerous to the church who are threatening and attacking the church they're destructive to the church and then he says oh don't worry they they will receive their judgment well what's the question that's that arises in the minds of the christians in chapter 3. When? When will their judgment come? I mean, enough already. We're being persecuted. We're being destroyed. We're under attack. They deserve judgment. Their judgment is sure. Why are they still running around free? How come we're still dealing with what we're dealing with? When will this judgment that's so richly deserved finally, finally happen to them? Well, that's the, that's the question that, uh, that we have in mind going into chapter 3 in the early parts of chapter 3. And, and Peter says, the Lord is not slow. One day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. That the, the Lord is at work. He will fulfill His promise. And there are those people who say, ah, it's never, He's never going to come. Never going to change. Yeah, He said He would come. Where is He? Where is He? He's not coming. So we're going to do what we want. We don't have to worry about the judgment of God. Peter says, no, don't you worry. The judgment of God is coming. The day of the Lord is coming. His timing is not like ours. Verse 8, the Lord is not slow in fulfilling His promises. 3, 9, but He's waiting. 
He's waiting. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises as some count slowness, but is patient. God is patient. He's, he's willing to let time pass. Who, to whom is he patient? Toward whom is he patient? Who receives his patience? You. He is patient toward you, Christian. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. So when you, when you look at this verse in its context, it's answering a question, how long? We've been enduring a long time and we're still persecuted, we're still struggling. And yeah, we know the day of the Lord is coming, but can it be soon? I'd rather it be soon so we could be out of here. We wouldn't have to deal with this. And he says, oh, the Lord is patient toward you. He is patient toward you not wishing that any should come to to perish, but that they would come to repentance. Well, to whom is he patient? He's patient toward those who are going to be saved. He's letting things go long. He's letting the, the time get long and painful, not just because he, he wants to uh, you know, go for a certain period of time or whatever. He has a period of time in mind, and that's so that everyone who's going to repent will repent. When that happens, the day of the Lord will come. When that happens, judgment will come. But not until then, because he is patient toward you. Let's say one of you became a Christian last week. Just last week. Well, the Lord was patient with you until last week. What if he had stopped being patient two weeks ago? Where would you be? God is patient. He is Biding his time, bringing everyone to repentance that he has chosen. When all of the elect have come to know him, then will come the day of the Lord. Not a moment soon, sooner than that. He's patient. He's patient. God doesn't want any of you, anybody in the you category, to perish. But he's waiting for all in the you category to come to faith, to come to repentance. And so when we put the verse in its context, you see that it's not saying what we thought. It's not saying God wants everybody to be saved and anyone who says different is denying what's going on here. That's not what this verse is saying. He is patient toward a particular group, toward those who are the recipients of his patience. And that is the you category. Christians, believers, or more broadly, the elect, maybe those who have not yet repented but are in that same category. And so he will withhold judgment on the world. He will withhold judgment on scoffers and false teachers and false prophets until such a time that all of the elect have come to faith in Christ. And when that time comes, then, verse 10, the day of the Lord will come like a thief, but not before then. So, what's the application here for us? God is patient toward you. He is patient toward you. And can there be more comforting words than God is patient toward you? But did you know that His patience requires us to be patient? 
requires it. Yeah, we're told to be patient, but his patience requires us to be patient. Because when he is patient about something, when he is patient, that means that that situation can continue. And I would just rather it end already. But God is patient. And so when he is patiently enduring, when, when time is going on, like my own suffering, I'm impatient. I want it to be over already. The Lord is patient. He's working his purposes. And that may take time. And while that happens, I need to be patient as well. And so his patience towards other people means that we need to be patient as well. And another application from this passage is that we should take courage in the midst of political and social difficulty. Even if things turn south and go sharply against the church, take courage. Take courage. That's what Peter said. They were suffering. And they were wondering, when's the end going to come already? When will they be judged? And Peter said, don't worry, the judgment is coming. It will happen, but God is so patient. He is so patient, He even allows that to continue so that more and more and finally all of the elect will come in and come to repentance. And so He is patient and He is patient toward us and that requires that we be patient, but it gives us great courage knowing that God has not forgotten and the day of the Lord will come and recompense will happen. And the, his enemies and the enemies of his bride, they will see judgment. And so when we look at 2 Peter 3, 3, 9, we, say that it, we see that it's actually talking about something different than what we thought it was talking about initially. And likewise with this next one, 1 Timothy 2, 4. Go ahead and turn back there. 1 Timothy 2, 4. First Timothy 2, 4 says, God desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Well, I read earlier from Romans and I taught something different. I said that, no, they're actually those that, that God wills to harden. Well, which is the case? Which is true? And that's the objection that's raised. This verse is raised in that in the, the context of that objection saying that, that God desires all people to be saved. It's clear right there. He wants everybody to be saved. And so what do you mean saying that, no, he wills that someone be hardened, that he actually makes that sovereign choice, that he has actually got these vessels prepared for destruction? How can you say that if it says right here in this verse that God desires all people to be saved? Well, there are a couple of ways to think about this. And, and um, the first one, the, the response that's usually given, and I think there's merit to this, we talked a couple of weeks ago about the will of God, the will of decree, and the will of command. That we saw in Scripture, for example, with Jesus himself, that God has said, you shall not murder. But Jesus was murdered. How do we understand that? Well, we read in Acts chapter 2 and in Acts chapter 4 that, that in fact, that was the very plan of God. What these evil men did was the very specific plan of God. What God had forbidden to happen... You shall not murder was exactly his definite plan accomplished in the death of his son. 
And so here you have an instance where something is commanded by God that it, that it be forbidden, and yet God wills that it happen. So which is the case? Did he, did he will it or did he not will it? Did he wish it or did he not? Did he want it or did he not? And so we talked about God's will and how we understand that two things are going on. One is the command that God gives to us. And he tells us, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, and don't murder. And then God's sovereign plan of all things, it was his plan, it was his definite plan, it was his intention, it was his hand at work, Acts 2 and Acts 4, to bring it about that Jesus would be murdered at the same time. And so when we talk about God's will, what God wishes, we can see that on one hand, he wishes on this plane, and on the other hand, he, he determines what will happen on another plane. And that is hard for me to grasp. It's hard for me to explain. It certainly can't get my mind all the way around it. But scripture teaches both of those things are true. And I think that's what is going on here. For example, in Acts chapter 17 and in verse 30, Paul says, all men everywhere are commanded to repent. That's God's command to everybody. That's obviously his will. That's his desire. That's his wish. He's commanding all men everywhere to repent. Acts 17, 30. So we know that it's God's desire. We know that it's God's will. We know that he's given the command for all to repent. But that doesn't mean that that's how it's going to work out. That doesn't mean that his definite plan, his hand, his intention of what he was going to accomplish wouldn't be different than that. It's the same thing. And so I think that that might be a way to understand that, that that when we see this, God desires all people to be saved. Well, we know that because he commanded that all people be, uh, come to repentance. Acts chapter 17. That's one way this is understood. But, but there's a better way. And I think there's a, uh, there's a more contextual way for us to understand what is going on here. That this verse sounds like it does because we read it by itself. We read it by itself. Even when I read it to you. God desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. But when you read it in its context, then other things start to come to light. For example, we all immediately interpreted what all people means. We all immediately interpreted what all people means. And we came to our conclusions or whatever, but we didn't even think about it. We just made a conclusion. But I want to tell you that that's a word or that's a phrase that occurs elsewhere in the context. In fact, at the beginning of this paragraph. So if you look up to chapter 2 and verse 1, just adding context, reading what is here. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, thanksgivings be made for all people. So he used the word in that context. What did he mean by it? Well, again, we interpreted it to mean something. But he tells us in the context what he means. For kings and all who are in high position. That we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. So he tells us what he means when he says, pray for all people, kings and those in high authority. He gives categories. He gives types of people. He, if, he, if he intended prayer for every single individual, that would be hard to do, by the way. Because even if, even if we were to have a prayer meeting, and let's say it's going to last 24 hours, and you even get to pray in groups of three on your own. We're going to pray for 24 hours. And we were to pray just for the people in Fallon. We, we wouldn't even be able to pray for everyone. We would break it up into categories. Well, I pray for the doctors and I pray for the... We would break it into types of people. 
And Paul does the same thing. He says, pray for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Why does he have to say that? Why does he exhort them to pray for kings and those in authority? Because the kings and those in authority were the ones who were persecuting them. They were the ones who made life difficult for them. And he says, he says, pray for all people. Now, I know you heard me say, pray for people like you. That's not what I said. Pray for kings. Pray for those in authority. Pray for those you don't like. Pray for those who are of the wrong political party. Pray for those who have the right to cause difficulty and even harm to you. Don't just pray for your friends and those like you. Pray for those people as well. Pray for all types of people. Pray for all groups of people. Specifically for kings and all who are in high position that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires, that same phrase, all people. He's already defined what he meant by it. He's already defined it. He desires all types of people, all kinds of people, not just people like you. Not just the people from the one political group. Not just uh, the one economic group or the one race or whatever. He wants, he wants to save people broadly. Just like he exhorted to, encourage, to uh, pray for people broadly. God wants to save broadly. Pray for all types of people because God desires all types of people to be saved. He's not urging that we pray for every individual without exception. When he's defining the term all people, it doesn't mean all, every individual without exception. It means all people without distinction. So both times we have this phrase being used in verse 1 and verse 4, it's used in the same way. It's used in the same way. And if you're going to say it's not, if you're going to say, no, there's a difference, then it's incumbent upon you to give the argument for why from the text he's using it differently. My argument is he's using it the same way. And the application for us is clear. It's clear. We need to pray for people that are different from us. We need to pray for, for the people we don't like. Those lousy, whatever you just filled in there, <laughs> pray for them. Pray for them. God wants to save even people like that. Even people like that. So we need to be praying for those who are uh, in authority for our government officials. H- have you noticed that very often... The, the peace and the quiet that the church endures or enjoys is the result of decisions made by the government? Boy, I hate to admit that. I'm just as Nevadan as anybody. But I'll tell you what, there are masks in the audience because our governor said so. There are certain restrictions that we have because our governor said so. That our lives have been changed in certain ways by the political authorities, authorities that are over us. And so when he exhorts prayer praying for them. A part of what you're praying is that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. So pray for them, that they would, that they would make rules, judgments, determinations, etc. that would contribute to peace. So pray for all types of people. God may even want to save some of them. You may not think you know, that would be a real catch. I've watched the news and God wants to save even some of them. Those types of people. And so when we first read our verse here, when we read it by itself, it sure sounds like 
something that it doesn't sound like when you read it in its context. It means something different. Thirdly, a resistant Jerusalem. Go back to Matthew 23. When we say, when I have said, God is free to save whom he will, that God is the one who makes the determination, that it's not up to the one, the man running or the man willing, but to God who shows mercy, he gets to do that and it accomplishes its purpose. Well, that seems to, seems to bring up the argument here from Matthew 23 and verse 37. It gets brought up a lot, which, which depicts this resistance. There's something, there's something in theological terms called irresistible grace, and that means when God works to regenerate you, it happens. And nobody and nothing stands in the way. And that's new birth. God does that. It's irresistible. Well, here we're going to see there's resisting going on. Verse 37. Oh, Jerusalem. Jesus speaking. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing So it sounds like from this verse right here that the person God is seeking to redeem can be unwilling and thus thwart God's plan to redeem them. That's what it sounds like. But again, let's read the context. Let's read just the context of chapter 23. What is going on? Because Jesus didn't just, you know, woke up one morning and said, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. It's, it's recorded in a context. And in this context, you see it, the, the chapter head for 23 is seven woes to the scribes and Pharisees or something like that. A woe is like a, like a statement of judgment, misery. And he's speaking all the way through. He's speaking about these scribes and Pharisees. And at the beginning of each paragraph, you can see he points it out again and again. He says, verse 13, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. He continues on, but then down in 16, he says, Woe to you blind guides who say, If anyone swears by the temple, it's nothing. But if anyone swears by the gold of the temple, he's bound by that oath. You blind fools. He says in 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weightier matters of the law. The scribes and the Pharisees that he calls hypocrites again and again and again. They are the ones that in the first paragraph, they tell you what to do and they will not do it themselves. They actually stand in your way. They are hypocrites. They tell you one thing, they do another thing. You shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. And he continues that. The seven woes are all related. The seven woes are all about the religious leaders, the scribes and the Pharisees, and how they stood in the way of God's work amongst his people. And with that being said, the seven woes being declared and the reasons for those seven woes being declared, in, in light of that, who's he been speaking to? Scribes and the Pharisees, the leaders. In light of that, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. Well, who's that? Who's Jerusalem? The entirety of the city? No, it's those who have been stoning the prophets and killing those sent. 
It's the leaders. I'll prove it to you. How often would I have gathered your children? Very, very often when this is quoted, it's quoted without those words. It's quoted as, how often I would have gathered you, but you were unwilling. I wanted to do it. I really wanted to bring you salvation, but you just wouldn't do it. You weren't willing. You resisted my irresistible will. And that's not what it says. He says, how often I would have gathered your children, Jerusalem, speaking to Jerusalem, speaking to the religious leaders that he's just been decrying for seven woes all through chapter 23. And here he gets to the end and he says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. How often I would have gathered your children like a hen gathers her chicks. And you were not willing. Who's he condemning? What's he talking about there? Is he saying that a person is able to resist God's will to regenerate him, to make him new, to give him new life? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, religious leaders, you have stood in the way of my ministry to my people. How dare you? And so he woes them seven times. And then he declares finally here in 37, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to it. How often I would have gathered your children together and you were not willing. You stood in my way. Well, that's exactly consistent with what he said in the rest of 23. So the issue, the, the objection is, well, sure, people can resist God's will to give them new life, to, to bring them to faith. Of course they can. It says right here that, uh, that God tried to work with his people and they, and they resisted. That's not what it says. This is an indictment upon the religious leaders. God wanted to work with his people and the religious leaders were disobedient all along. And so this is not an issue of a person rejecting God's saving work because he was unwilling. What's going on here is a religious leader who's supposed to be ministering for God is instead hindering God's people. That's what's going on in this passage. It's got nothing to do with the topic of irresistible grace It's not about God's Spirit calling an individual to saving faith. Rather, it is a pronouncement against religious leaders in Jerusalem, the center of Israel, the religious center of Israel, who have sinfully and selfishly misled the people. people. They've not served as stewards and shepherds of God's people. They have been hindrances. And so Jesus told parables about this. The hired man leaves, remember? So there's application here as well. There's application to me. There's application to the elders here at Parkside. We dare not stand in the way of God's work amongst his people. I don't ever want to hear Jesus say this kind of thing to me. This is spoken to the religious leaders because of what they've done. Well, it turns out I'm a religious leader. Turns out the elders at Parkside are religious leaders. And so we take this caution very, very seriously. We, we feel the weight of it. We in no way want to hinder you, God's people, from God's ministry to you. And so because of that, we, we seek to open God's word. We seek to, to teach it as it's written. We, we seek to point you to Christ and not ever stand in that way. We work to interpret and explain Scripture as it is and not as we might like it and not as you might like it. But what's here? So the first, the first application is, is primarily to the elders, but those leading Bible studies, those parents with children, 
parents with children. That's the first point of application. The second point of application, having examined these passages, all three of these, God's freedom to save whomever he wills remains. These objections have not changed anything. These objections have been about other topics. We discern that by reading them in their context. Nothing magical. No, no mystery verse that we pulled out by reading it in its context. God is free to save whomever he wills. And that's the consistent teaching of Scripture. That's the clear teaching of Scripture. And then thirdly, since God is free and sovereign in the salvation of sinners, how much more confidence do we have in prayer, in praying for the salvation of that person? If that person, if that person's will were the ultimate deciding factor, you could pray to God till you're blue in the face. And if that person was unwilling, it would never happen. Because you're dependent upon the fallen, sinful, selfish, broken will of a sinner. And God can minister and God can persuade and God can do these other things. But you are dependent upon the fallen will of a sinner to trust Christ. There is no hope there. God is very persuasive. But if that person gets the final say, there is no hope. But that's not the case. God is free and he is sovereign to save whom he will. And so when you pray for that person, that, that broken, sinful, selfish person who's just like you, when you pray for that person, their will is just as hard, just as turned away from God, you are talking and relying upon the will of a good and gracious and merciful and saving God who is able to give life in that context. Regardless of the hardness of heart of that person, regardless of that person's disposition toward you, toward the gospel, toward the church, regardless of their experience, regardless of their disposition toward God, God is able to reach right in there and give life. And so there's encouragement in prayer. You're talking to the one who can do something about it. Well, that's what Scripture teaches, and that's where there is hope found in this topic. If it were true that man's will is, has the final say, that God has built a very strong chain, but it all hangs on the final link of that person's will, there would be no hope. God, builds your chain stronger. Big deal. It all hangs on the weakest link, which is their will. The Scripture tells us that their will is to turn away from God at every turn. Fortunately, fortunately, that is not the biblical teaching. The biblical teaching is that God is sovereign. He is in control. And when he builds the chain, he builds it all the way. And so you can pray and ask him. You can pray and ask him. Will he save that person? I have no idea. I don't know. He knows, but you don't know. But you can ask him. He has the power to do so. And he is merciful and he is loving depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who shows mercy. So in our passage or our passages today, I've sought to do a couple of things, sought to demonstrate a reliance upon God's word to interpret itself. Context is king. And in these objections, the, the, even the, the verses that come to mind right away, yeah, but, but, 
those verses that come to mind right away. Well, raise those verses and then work through that context to see if that verse says what you think that verse says. We have to go back to the Bible. We have to read it in its own context. We need to interpret what it says here and not just what I think I hear on the first reading or what I think I hear when I quote just that verse. Read it in its context. But finally, and and the, the encouragement that comes out of this is that God really is in control. He really is in control and He is good and He is merciful and He is loving. Just look at the salvation you've received. And that gives hope. And that gives joy. And when you pray for that lost person, you can have peace. Because it's dependent upon God who mercies. And there is hope there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much that you have given us your word. Thank you that it is clear. It is coherent. Thank you that you have given it to us in a context. We don't just have to discern random proverbs that have no connection with with one another. Your, Your word is a gift to us beyond measure. And your salvation is a gift to us beyond measure. One we did not manufacture. One we did not Uh, play the part of the final link well. We are the recipients of your grace. By your grace, we have been saved all the way. Father, I pray for anyone in this room who doesn't know you, who is not redeemed. I pray that you would minister to them. I pray that you would continue to be patient and that you would draw them to yourself, even today, that they would find peace with God through Jesus because of what he's done. Father, I pray that your spirit would create new life in unbelievers, even this morning. Father, we trust you and we worship you. And we ask for your help as we wrestle with difficult things. May we do so with your Bible open. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to remind you that uh, there will be a family up front to pray with you. If you have prayer requests, if you have questions about what we've talked about,